I am passionate about Jesus Christ. I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God that came to earth down the cross for my sins and rose again on the third day. I believe that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved from the awful wrath of God that will be poured out on those in hell. And because of this, I am passionate about the church of Jesus Christ. I believe the church of Jesus Christ is the hope of the world today because it takes the message and the light of Jesus Christ to the lost and spiritually darkened world we live in. The message of Jesus Christ is the message the world needs more than any other message. And only the church offers it. I believe the church of Jesus Christ is the greatest force for good the world has ever known. When the church obeys the Word of God, preaches the Son of God, is empowered by the Spirit of God, it will do more good than any politician, political party, or any other organization in the world. I believe the church of Jesus Christ is the greatest agent of change in the world because it is empowered by the Holy Spirit. Through the power of the Holy Spirit, the church is able to make real changes in a person, a family, community, and the world. This is because the Holy Spirit doesn't merely change a person's appearance. He changes their hearts and their lives so they are a brand new creation in Jesus Christ. Despite this, we live in a day when it is very popular to be extremely critical of the church. Sadly, this is true among Christians as much as it is among non-Christians. I've heard Christians make the statement that they love Jesus but not the church. Or they love Jesus but not other Christians. There is a constant barrage of articles being written about how the church is missing it in our day. And as a general rule, the it that the church is missing varies from article to article. If you read them all, it would seem the church is doing nothing right in this world. Personally, I despise these sort of articles and have largely stopped reading them. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that we should bury our heads in the sand about issues the church or our church may have. But I honestly cannot see how these sort of articles help anything at all. All they do, in my opinion is give disgruntled people a platform to continue to malign the church and marginalize the church. And I believe that when you marginalize the church, you marginalize the Jesus that is the hope of the church and the message of the church. But I wondered as I was studying in 1 Corinthians this week, what if, what if, instead giving up on the church because of her imperfections, are flaws, the people that make up the church that are imperfect and flawed. What, what if, despite all of that, we were actually supposed to stick with the church, be committed to the church, and be thankful for the church? What if our job was not to criticize malign and give up on the church. But what if our job was to jump in and make a difference? What if our job was to be a part of an imperfect church that tried to make a difference in a lost and a dying world? What if, no matter what, we are to be thankful for the church of Jesus Christ? I think we are. You say, well, why would I stick with and be thankful for an imperfect and flawed church? That is what we are going to talk about today. Open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 1. That's page 870 in the Pew Bibles. You find that, I'll ask you to stand to honor the reading of God's Word. First Corinthians one and one. Paul, called to be an apostle of Jesus Christ through the will of God and Sosthenes, our brother, to the church of God which is at Corinth, to those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, with all who in every place call on the name of Jesus Christ our Lord, both theirs and ours. Grace to you and peace from God our Father. 
and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God which was given to you by Christ Jesus. That you were enriched in everything by Him, in all utterance and knowledge. Even the testimony of Christ was confirmed in you. So that you come short in no gift, eagerly waiting for the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will also confirm you to the end, that you may be blameless at the day of Jesus Christ. God is faithful by whom you were called to the fellowship of His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. The title of the message this morning is Thankful for the Church. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you and we praise you. For all that you've given us and all that you've done, we thank you for your word that guides us, for your spirit that opens us up and helps us to understand it. We ask today that your Holy Spirit would come and open our hearts and minds to receive your word. Help us, God, to let our hearts be the the good ground that would receive the word and bring forth fruit from it. God, let us go out and and live and be different because your word has, has brought change into our lives. Let the way that we live and how we act and all that we do testify that Jesus Christ is our Lord and our Savior. Help us, God, to understand what you want us to understand today. Help us, God, to be committed to your church as you'd have us to be. Help us, God, to just live in a way that would bring honor and glory to your name. I ask that you would fill me with your Holy Spirit to give me clarity of thought and clarity of speech. Help me today to speak your words and your ways for your glory. We ask all of this in Jesus' name and for His sake. Amen. You may be seated. Now, Paul left the church at Corinth, and it was a fairly good church and a healthy church when he left, but it did not stay a perfect church. Soon after Paul left, problems arose within the church at Corinth. The, the problems were many. Some of the problems revolved around spiritually immature Christians. These were people that were saved while Paul was there, but they never really went beyond that initial stage of being spiritual infants. They never grew to be fully devoted followers of Jesus Christ. And and because they were spiritually immature, they did what spiritually immature people do. They caused problems in the church. And the church at this time was the unity of the church was threatened. The people were breaking off into different factions to try to promote one view or the other. Some of the factions were over which preacher they liked better. Some of the factions were over which spiritual gifts were the better spiritual gifts and and ought to be honored more. There was also an issue of immorality creeping into the church. Corinth was a It was just a hotbed of all kinds of immorality. And these people had been raised in that culture. And now we're being called to to try to come out and be separate and be different. And some of them weren't having much luck at that. They were continuing to to live the way they had always lived. and, And the church was beginning to condone it and accept it and allow them to bring it into the church. There was also Greek philosophy that was pagan in its origin. It was mostly, a lot of it was very contrary to the gospel and to scripture. And it was becoming into the church and it was getting accepted. And so the church, the church had problems. And so we, as we get into the book of 1 Corinthians, we want to understand. We're not looking at a perfect church, whatever that might actually be. We're looking at a church of people who are flawed, deeply flawed in some cases. Right? They are they are worldly at times. They are immoral at times. They think like the world at times. I mean, there's just there's problems in this church. Paul writes to them, and I, I always want to point out what he says in verse 2, to the church of God. Let's keep that in mind. The book of 1 Corinthians was not written to the rugged individuals who lived in Corinth. Uh, The book of 1 Corinthians wasn't written to a bunch of individual Christians who would take it to their home and read it by themselves and never interact with others. The book of 1 Corinthians was written to a a church. It was written to a people who came together as the body of Christ in the city of Corinth. In fact, most of the New Testament is written in exactly that same way. It is written not to individuals, but to a church. And so as we look at this, the reminder for us is that the church is important. Right? That, that when God wrote books and He wrote letters to people, very rarely were they individual people. And, and, and out of the three or four that were written to individual people, three of them were written to pastors about how to deal with the church. So the church is always the central focus of what God's doing in the world. 
But Jesus said in the passage I read at the beginning of service that He will build His church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Not, not individuals. The church. The church is central to all that God is ever going to do in the world. So we see that it's written to a flawed people. It's written to a church. And then we get to verse 4 and Paul says, I thank my God always. Now, if we didn't know what was going on in Corinth, that would seem incredible. I mean, that would seem like great. But knowing what we know, Paul is thankful for a flawed church. Paul is thankful for this church that has so many deep and legitimate issues. Right? I mean... The issues in Corinth aren't over what color the carpet should be. The issues in Corinth aren't should we sing old songs on the books or new songs on the screen. It's not over pews or theater seats. Man, these are, these are life-destroying, eternally significant issues they're fussing with. And Paul says, I am thankful for you. Paul didn't wait for the church to become perfect. For he became thankful for it. He was thankful for this church in the midst of their flaws and their failures. He was committed to doing what was necessary to help. Paul wasn't going to hide his head about their issue. In much of this letter, he's going to deal sternly with problems they're having. But he is thankful for them. And, and, and dealing with their issues. And see, this is where the, the difference between Paul writing to the Corinthians and dealing with the issues of the church and the articles that are written today. Paul is committed to helping the church overcome their problems. Paul is committed to being a part of this church and doing what is necessary to help them rise above this, to be what God intends them to be. He is thankful for the church. He is committed to this church. And I want you to understand, Paul's commitment was costly to him. I mean, what happened with Paul and the Corinthians was, was painful. It was problematic. It, it caused him emotional stress. It caused him spiritual problems. It caused him physical problems. And yet he was committed to doing what was necessary to making a difference in that church. And as Paul launches into being thankful for the church, there is a theme that we see repeated. Verse 4, I, I, I'm thankful the grace which was given to you by Jesus Christ. And really all of this is about him being thankful. He's thankful in verse 5 because Jesus Christ had enriched them. He's thankful in verse 7 because they were looking forward to the, the coming of Jesus Christ. He's thankful in verse 9 that they have been called to Jesus Christ. See, Paul's Paul's gratitude for the church was not so much for just the people were flawed. Paul was thankful because Jesus had worked in that church. Jesus had done something in those people. And what we have to understand is, being thankful for the church, we are thankful for the church because of Jesus' work in the church. If it is a legitimate church of Jesus Christ, Jesus is there and He is at work. There are things He has done, there are things He is doing. And as a, as a people who are believers in Jesus Christ, we can be thankful for His church because of the work He is doing in that church. Paul lists four ways in this passage, four reasons he is thankful, four reasons we should be thankful for the church today. First is that Jesus gives grace to the church. I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God which was given to you by Christ Jesus. To me, it seems most fitting that he starts off by talking about the need and the receipt of grace. The fact that these people received grace and they needed grace that is a guarantee that they were not a perfect people. Perfect people don't need grace. Flawed people need grace. Sinful people need grace. When Paul went to Corinth, they were deeply rooted in idolatry and sin. 
They were separated from God and they were in a bad place. They desperately needed grace to overcome their sin. They needed grace to to bridge the gap between them and God. And thankfully they received that grace. As Paul is writing this letter today, they are still a people who need grace. And they need it for the exact same reason. There's still sin. There are still issues. There are still problems that they have that that on their own would separate them from God. They need the grace of God to to help them overcome these problems. They need the grace of God to to cover their sin. Like the Corinthians, there was a time when we were far from God. Our sin separated us from God, made us hostile toward Him. We were alienated and enemies by our thoughts and by our actions, the Bible says. And there came a point to where we understood our sin and our need for Jesus and we, we called out to Him and we received what? Grace. Grace that we so desperately needed. And what often happens is that we forget that grace and the need for grace, it's not a one-time event. Friend, I, I propose to you that you need grace as much today as you did on the day that you got saved. And I propose you need it for the exact same reason. You need grace because of sin. Now that's a, that's a hard truth. We want to push back. I mean, the idea that the church is hypocritical, that the church is inconsistent, that the church is flawed, and if they really followed Jesus, they'd be perfect. And I, and I would give myself to a church like that. But I wonder, do any of us meet this sort of mythical standard of what we expect from a people that gather together and call it a church? Right? Because God has a, a standard that we are supposed to live by. That is, the essence of sin is that we have failed to meet God's standard. That's the essence of what a sin is. God has said, do this, and we didn't do it. God has said, don't do this, and we did it. And God's actions... Because what we often do is we narrow it down to like big things, like you know, sexual immorality. Well, I'm not, you know, adulterous, or I'm not a homosexual. I'm not looking at porn. But, but what about just God's standard for life in general? Let me let me show you some verses that demonstrate our need for grace today. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. Now that sounds easy enough. But I mean, that's, that's like loving God with everything we have. And, and loving God, it's not like loving pizza. And it's not like loving a song or a show. Loving God is something that, that changes how I live. Right? So, to have kept that, that means that God must have been the motivating factor behind everything I did. And that I strove to do His will in all things. And if at any point in time I did something other than what I know God wanted me to do, I failed. Because I love something or someone more than I love God. And I would propose that the number one threat to our love of God in this way, it's not a person outside of ourselves. It is the person we see when we look in the mirror. We love ourselves. And that love of self often puts us at odds with loving God with our heart, soul, mind and strength. So we love God, but we're also supposed to love our neighbor. So we love ourselves. And our neighbor really is just people around us. People who need help. I mean, have you, have you loved everyone in your life this week? The way that you love yourself? And again, let's, let's not make this easy. I'm not saying that you love your spouse or your children. I mean, that's challenging enough, but, but that's not what it says. Did you love your co-workers this week like you loved yourself? Did you love the checker? At Walmart, like you loved yourself? Did you, did you love the, the waiter or waitress at your restaurant like you loved yourself? Did you? Or, and if we've done that, then whatever you want men to do for you, also to them, for this is the law and the prophets, right? The golden rule. Let me ask you, have you treated everyone that you came into contact with this week in exactly the same way you would have wanted to be treated? 
Have you acted towards them how you wanted them to act towards you? Have you just wanted to go out of your way to make sure that they treated you, that you treated them in the way that you treat, you want to be treated? Have you? Do all things without complaining and disputing. <laughs> I don't like that verse. In the army, you learn how to complain. You get pretty good at it. Do all things. Now, again, this doesn't say do all things for your family. This doesn't say do all things for your spouse. All things for yourself. This is all things, the end, everything in your life. Without griping and complaining. Have you done everything this week without griping and complaining? Or, or this one. Bearing with one another. Now, Bearing with one another is putting up with people. But not putting up with them in the way that you fantasize about punching them in the throat. But it's putting up with them in love. In kindness. Knowing that you too need people to put up with you. Have you put up with everyone in your life this week in that way? Forgiving one another. Holding a grudge against anybody right now? Somebody wronged you this week, this month, this year and you just can't let it go? Supposed to. Be angry and do not sin. There's a hard verse. Nor let the sun go down on your wrath. Did you blow up this week at someone? Did you blow up on... I mean, be angry and do not sin. Now, let's just be... Again, let's not make this easy. If you got mad at someone and went into your room by yourself and had a scream and cuss and fit, you, you were angry and you sinned. Just because nobody saw it doesn't mean it wasn't right or it wasn't wrong. Are you holding a grudge? Because have you let the sun go down on your wrath? Were you mad at someone last week and you're still mad at them this week? Let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth. But what is good for necessary edification that it may impart grace to your hearers. Has everything you said this week been beneficial to those who heard it? Was it helpful? Was it good? Not good according to the world standards, but according to the Bible standards, was it? Now, here's the thing. Those are all commands. Not, not one of those was a suggestion. They're all commands, and because they're commands, guess what that makes them? God's standard. And if you have failed to meet God's standard, you sinned. And if you sinned, guess what you desperately need in your life? God's grace. It is given by Jesus Christ. If you're like me, you look at that list and you think, wow, I desperately need God's grace. And in light of that, aren't you glad you're a part of a church filled with people who desperately need God's grace too? I mean, imagine how out of place you would feel in a church filled with perfect people who didn't need grace as much as you do. The old saying says, if you find a perfect church, don't go because you'll ruin it. These verses prove it. If you're going to go there and complain, you've ruined it. You and I were people who need grace. And we need it every moment, every day, every part of our lives. And we always will. And thankfully, there is grace that is found in Jesus Christ. And it is given to his, his church. You and I can be, we can be thankful and committed to the church because everyone here needs grace as much as we do. We can be thankful for the church because in this place we find the grace and the mercy we need to help us in our time of need. Jesus gives grace to the church. A second reason to be thankful is that Jesus empowers the church. Paul says in verse 5 that you were enriched in everything by Him in all utterance and knowledge. Even as the testimony of Christ was confirmed in you so that you come short in no gift. And the idea overall is that they had everything they needed, every spiritual gift they needed to do what Jesus needed them to do, what He wanted them to do. And He, he particularly mentions utterance and knowledge, speech and knowing. And the idea, I think, of those two in particular, mentioning them here, is that the main mission of the church is to make disciples of all nations, to go into a spiritually dark world, to engage them with the light of Christ, help them move from darkness to light. And because the church 
was enriched in all utterance and all knowledge. They had what they needed. They, they may not have could done what every church in the world could do, but they could do the one thing that was really most important. They could engage their spiritually darkened culture with the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ. They had what they needed there. Verse 6 is really important, I think. And, and I don't guess I understood what it meant until I was studying it this week. Even as the testimony of Christ was confirmed in you. And here, here's what this means. When Paul went to Corinth, he preached Jesus to them. And he preached Jesus as a Savior who died but rose again. He, he preached Jesus as a Savior who was living and active in the lives of those that he saved. He preached Jesus as one who would save them if they would call out to him. And all of that is that's good news. That, that's good news of the gospel. But how would you know, and how would you know, that was real? You believe it, and you call upon it, does, does that make it real? How would you, what would be something that would testify in my life that Jesus really had saved me, that he really was active and involved in my life? According to Paul, one of the main ways that the testimony of Christ was confirmed was that they had been enriched in everything, in utterance and knowledge. See, the testimony that Jesus Christ was alive and at work in their lives and had saved them was that they had been given spiritual gifts to serve Jesus Christ. This testimony was further confirmed as they began to use those spiritual gifts to show, to help people come to know Jesus Christ. The testimony of Christ was confirmed when they were taken from being pagan idolaters and turned into fully devoted followers of Christ who were empowered by Christ to serve Him, and then went out and worked to make disciples of all nations. You see, the people in the church, they weren't all led to Christ by Paul. Some by Apollo, some by people in the church. They had been, they had been empowered by Jesus to serve Jesus, and they had went out to do it, and as, and as these changes were made in their lives, it was just proof Jesus is real. He had saved them. He was at work in their lives. It was a, a testimony. The reality of Jesus Christ. They could say, I know Jesus is real. Because look at what He has done in my life. Look at the changes He has made. And then He goes on in verse 7. and says they, that they come short in, in no gift. And I think the idea of they come short in no gift is that they, again, they had... What they needed to do, what needed to be done. Perhaps they didn't have every gift there was, but for what Jesus wanted that church to accomplish, they were, they were prepared. They had what they needed. And I believe that every church, mostly every church, I guess, I don't know every church, but I'm going to say, I believe, that by and large, this is true in most churches. Most Churches have people gifted with every gift necessary to do what Jesus wants them to do. Very rarely, I believe, is the need for more gifted people greater than the need for more gifted people to serve. In every church... There are people who have been saved by Jesus and have been empowered by Jesus, and yet they are not serving Jesus. And the need is not so much for more people to come in as it is for those people to go out in their service. And that's the way it's supposed to be. I mean, we are all saved to serve. Let me show you something I think is, I saw this week and I thought was really cool. There's a difference between two different kinds of churches. First, it's what they call a consumer church. Consumer church is seen as a dispenser of religious goods and services. People come to church to be fed, to have their needs met through quality programs, to have professionals teach their children about God. They say, I, I go to church. But that's different than a missional church. Missional church is a body of people sent on mission, right, to make disciples of all nations, who gather in community for worship, Community encouragement, teaching from the Word, in addition to what they're self-feeding themselves through the week. They say, I am the church. Now those are very different. 
And, and the, what's called the consumer church, that has largely been the American model of church for years. People come to church, they hear preaching, they sing songs, they, they go home, and they come back to church. And, and many of the problems that are written about in the church are because of consumer church. Many of the problems we see in, in anything. Our homes, our nations, and our morals are because of consumer church. I, I go to church, I listen to preaching, I go home. Consumer church is not how the church was meant to be. The church originally was meant to be a missional church. Yes, coming together was super important. Encouragement, strengthening, equipping. But then they were sent out to, to make a difference in the world Around them, they, they all served. And let me, let me show you this from Scripture. Well, before I do, we'll look at this. But what we see in Scripture is that, and, and from this, is that there is a, a balance that we have to maintain between what I call consumer and contributor. See, we, we all need both. We need to be a consumer. We need the time to hear singing to hear preaching, to study the Word together. We, we need this time. But we also need to be contributors. Contributors give back. They, they support the church. They're, they're active in the service of the church. And, and any time that we over-consume and, and under-contribute, we become spiritually unhealthy. But this, when we get into the spiritually immature believers at Corinth, largely the problem is that they were spiritually immature because they were consumers and not contributors. And so it, it hinders our spiritual growth. It keeps us from making progress and being what we're supposed to be. But then if we over-contribute and under-consume, that leads to burnout and depression and discouragement. But we, we need the balance. We need be, to, to be together, to soak it in. And we need to take it and go exercise it out as well. And, and that's what this passage is kind of about. It says, He gave Himself some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some teachers for the equipping of the saints, for the work of ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. Now, we don't have time to get into this as much as I would like, but there's three truths from this I, I want to point out. First is that Jesus gave and the one I'm going to focus on is pastor-teachers to the church. But the idea that there would be somebody that would lead and teach the church, that's Jesus' idea. It's His plan. There would be a pastor-teacher for the church. But notice the second truth, what the pastor-teacher actually does. For the equipping of the saints for the work of ministry. See, we each have a role to play for the church to do what it's supposed to do. In, in consumer church, people just come and sit, and, and the pastor is the professional minister. He does, he does all the ministering that needs to be done. In the missional church, the pastor, he has his part to play in helping equip the people, but then they have their part to play in, in, in doing the work of the ministry. The third truth is that the church is edified when this happens. And the idea of edified is that it's, it's built up. Several things that means, but the one I want to focus on is, is spiritually mature. The church matures spiritually as everyone does their part. Spiritual maturity is, is key to the health of a church. Anytime a church is filled with spiritual immaturity... Led by spiritual immaturity. There are problems. It's a church that won't reach people. It's a church that, that fights over the color of the carpets. And over hymnals or songs on the screen. Over pews or theater seats. Those are, those are spiritually immature things to fight about. Those are things that babies fight about. That's what a spiritually immature church does. How do we move beyond that? Well, we all use our spiritual gifts and we serve the way that we're supposed to. As I use my spiritual gift... And I, I do what Jesus has equipped me to do. I grow spiritually. I can't 
tell you how much I've grown in just having to study and preach and, and do all the other things that go along with being a pastor. There has been a lot of spiritual growth that has come in that. And it has helped me, but, but hopefully if I'm doing it right, it's helped you too. As I use my spiritual gift, it helps you to grow spiritually as well. But it's supposed to be reciprocal. As you use your spiritual gift and you do what Jesus has you to do, it helps me to grow as well. Right? We, we feed and help one another. I mean, that's the way that Jesus set it up. He set it up this way to remind us that we need each other. That we always need each other. We will always need the church. And when the church is, is firing on all cylinders and everybody is playing their part, then the church is alive, thrives, it builds up, it reaches out, it, it is a glorious thing. But when the church isn't firing and people are consuming and not contributing, the church can still function, but it, it limps along, not accomplishing all that it can. Church is called a body in the Bible. We'll look at that in several weeks. And when one member of the body isn't working right, it kind of hinders everything. I learned that when my knee stopped working like it was supposed to. It's really important that you can bend your knee. I mean, you can still get by and you can still do a lot of things. But you can't do it as efficiently and as effectively as you could when you can bend your knee. The church can get by. Just a few people serve. It'll limp along. But it won't be able to do what it's supposed to do fully. It, it, won't, it won't be as glorious as it should be. Jesus equips the church to serve. We're all meant to be servants for Jesus Christ. And, and in some ways, we're all meant to serve through the church, for the church, in the church, for the glory of God and the mission of Jesus Christ. We all, I think, have a, a desire for our lives to count. As we serve Jesus Christ and help build up His church and reach out into the world, we make an eternal difference in people's lives. That counts. That matters. And thankfully, Jesus empowers His church to do all of those things. A third reason we should be thankful for the church is that Jesus is the, the hope of the church. Hope's important. I mean, you know people that, that have no hope? They just struggle to, to get by. Hope is, is vital to life. And the church, the church should be the most hopeful place in the world. Because unlike everything else, our hope is Jesus Christ. Listen, if your hope is in a political party... You're going to be disappointed at some point. They're going to fail you. I don't care which candidate you're hoping in. They're not going to live up to the hype. So that will let you down. If our hope is in anything other than Jesus, it is a failing, flawed, broken hope that, that will not sustain us. But the church, we have the hope of the risen Savior. The hope of Jesus Christ and the hope that we have in Jesus. It's not a, a far-fetched wish we, we hope would come true. No. It is the well-grounded, well-founded assurance that Jesus will do what He has said He will do. And with hope is the idea of expectation. We, we expect that Jesus will do what He has said He will do. There's hope in that. And Paul describes our hope in Jesus three ways. First, Jesus is coming for the church. In verse 8, at the end of it, he says, oh, I'm sorry, at the end of verse 7, that we are, they are eagerly awaiting the revelation of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, they are looking forward to Christ's return. And there's hope in that. The idea that Jesus is coming back for his church has been called the blessed hope of believers. This was the, the very first promise that the church was given after Jesus ascended. The angels said, men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will so come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. The certainty that Jesus was coming back, it encouraged them when they were discouraged. 
It motivated them to serve Jesus. It, it, it kept them going when everything around them was just pressing down on them. The hope that that gave them should give us that same kind of hope. We work till Jesus comes. We, we work because He is coming. And we want to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. Jesus never gives up on the church. This is, oh, this is such a good promise. Verse 8. Who will also confirm you to the end. Now, the idea of confirm is, is keep or establish. Now, Paul, just a few, little bit. He's going to lay into them pretty hard. He's going to tell them in some ways they're acting worse than pagans. He's going to tell them that he is not at all proud of them for the way that they're acting. He is going to tell them to focus on what really matters and quit fighting over the stupid stuff. But he doesn't want them to be overwhelmed. And so he tells them, Jesus who saved you is going to keep you. He's not going to give up on you. He's not just going to let you go. He is there, He is at work, and He is going to continue to be at work in you until He returns. This is similar to what He wrote to the Philippians, being confident of this very thing. He who began a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. If you're like me, you fail sometimes. If you're like me, sometimes that failure is just about overwhelming. I mean, you think, it should be better than this. It shouldn't be this easy to trip me up. And we feel bad. And I think, how can, how can I keep going? Why would Jesus even hear me when I pray? And then there's a promise. He never gives up on me. That, that He who began that work in me is going to keep it up. Is going to continue it until He comes back. That He hasn't let me go. He hasn't thrown me away. Still in His hand. I'm still His. Jesus never gives up on us. That's, that's a motivating hope right there. And then the final hope is that Jesus sanctifies the church. In verse 8. He says that it will confirm you to the end that you may be blameless on the day of Jesus Christ our Lord. We, we talked about Wednesday night in church that, that in eternity there's only two places. There's heaven, there's hell, there's no, there's no in between. So today we stand here as either saved or lost. Again, there's, there's no in between. There's no almost saved. Uh, there's no kind of lost. You, you're either one or the other. And if we're saved, then we are headed for heaven. And we are headed for heaven because Jesus Christ has worked in us to make us righteous. Right? He says here that He has made us blameless. The idea of blameless is without guilt. And not the guilt where you feel bad kind of guilt, but the legitimate judicial kind of guilt. When you and I stand before Jesus on the last day, He's not going to say, you were pretty sorry, but I'll, I'll go ahead and let you in anyway. He's not. Not to anyone. He's not going to say, well, you did this, this, and this, but it wasn't that bad, so I'm going to let you in anyway. When we stand before Him as believers in Him, do you know what He's going to say? You are blameless. You are faultless. You are guiltless. You are sinless. You are righteous. Enter into the joy of your Lord. That's hopeful. Because again, I fail. And if it was up to me to be good enough to make it to heaven, even after I've been saved, I ain't going to make it. Jesus has made me blameless. Jesus has made me righteous. And if you're a believer in Christ, He has done that to you. That is hope. These are hopes that we need in this life. We need to know that this world is not all that there is. We need to know that Jesus isn't going to abandon us when we fail. 
And we need to know that our standing with God is not based upon our righteousness and our goodness, but upon Him. Thankfully, in the church, we find the hope that we need to do what Jesus wants us to do. And in the final, Jesus calls the church. Verse 9. said, God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. And I love what He said they were called to. To the fellowship of His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. You know, when we talk about being called, we often focus it narrowly on like being called to preach or being called to be a missionary. Certainly that's the type of calling. Or when we talk about a calling, we say, I'm called to a service, a particular kind of service and a particular way to serve. And, and, and truly, we're called to do things like that. But do you know what the primary call of, of Jesus is? Really, it's the call to a relationship with Him. It is the call to Him, to be with Him. And then everything else flows out of that. We see this when Jesus called the first disciples. And He went up on a mountain and He called those to Him. He called to Him those that He Himself wanted and they came to Him. Now, they were going to spend the, the majority of the next three and a half years just being with Jesus. And certainly there was going to be times of teaching. And there was going to be times of equipping. And there was going to be times of reproving and rebuking. But in three and a half years, how much do you think they just spent together? They were just together. See, the initial calling was the twelve he wanted to be with him. And after they were called to him, then they were appointed that they might go out and preach. See, our initial calling isn't to service, although that comes. Our initial calling is to a relationship. Genuine fellowship with the Savior of the world who wants to be with you. Let me, let me look at what Henry Blackaby said in Experiencing God. He said, do you sense as you read Scripture that God became real and personal to the people? Do you sense that their relationship with God was practical, that He was real and personal to Noah, to Abraham, to Moses, to Isaiah? Yes, yes, yes. Has God changed? No. This was true in the Old Testament. It was true during the time of Jesus' life and ministry. It was true after the coming of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. Your life can also reflect that kind of real, personal, practical relationship as you respond to God's working in your life. If for some reason you cannot think of a time when your relationship with God has been real, personal, and practical, you need to spend some time evaluating your relationship to Him. We don't serve the force, an impersonal entity can be used for our whims. We serve a God, a real personal God who can be known and wants to be known. He wants us to know Him, to love Him. And let that be the motivating factor behind all that we do. And I believe most people want a relationship with God. Thankfully, God calls people to that. He does it in the church and through the church. Here, people can come to know the God of the Bible and the Savior He sent. Here, people can embrace Him and know Him and, and love Him. We can be thankful for the church because in the church, God works in us, through us, for us. To help us have a genuine, legitimate relationship with Him. So how do we respond to this message? I, I think there's one of maybe three ways. First, do I need to receive Christ as my Savior? In all honesty, nothing we've talked about today really matters until you've done this. Right? You haven't received grace until you've received Jesus. You haven't been given a spiritual gift until you receive Jesus. You don't have hope until you receive Jesus. You don't have a relationship with Jesus until you receive Jesus. Everything rises and falls upon that. So if you have not made the personal decision to, to call upon the Lord, to turn from your sins, turn to Him, call upon Him, that, that's where you need to start. Everything rises and falls and begins there. But another one is, 
do I need to find and use my spiritual gifts? Every believer of, in Jesus has been saved by Jesus and equipped by Jesus to serve Jesus. Everyone. So do you, do you know what your spiritual gift is? Are you using it to edify, to, to build up His church? But if you cannot give definite, specific answers to those, perhaps you need to spend some time finding your spiritual gift, so that you can then use your spiritual gift. And then finally, do I need to be committed to the church? Consumer church doesn't require a commitment. Consumer church, you, you go and you stay as long as they do what you want them to do. And when they stop meeting your needs, whatever those may be, you... You find another church that will, and you just jump from church to church to church and place to place to place, never really committing. And there's a problem with that. The problem with that is we never really mature. Maturity, in a lot of ways, demands a commitment. I think in my experience, in, in just secular world and in spiritual life, one of the big things that separates a somebody that's immature and somebody that's mature is a commitment. Willing to, to do something. To stick it out. To keep with it even when it's hard. And if every time we are a part of a church and then we get tired of the church and we jump to another church, we're, we're never growing. We're, we're hindering our own spiritual development. We will be perpetually spiritually immature. And, and we will be perpetually unhappy, especially in a town like Guyman. I mean, there's a lot of churches in Guyman. There's 11, about 11 evangelical churches. But if you can only stick with a church a year or two, then you've got to jump because you're unhappy. <laughs> Just a few years, you're out of options. I mean, there's just not that many places to go. It's kind of a long drive. You go to Amarillo to one of the big churches down there. So what do you do? You determine you want to grow spiritually and you commit to a church. It doesn't, it doesn't have to be our church. But it needs to be to a church. And, and not the church, a nebulous entity called the church. Well, I'm a part of the church, so I have church in the woods behind my house. No. No, that's not what the Bible talks about. A local church. Church, the letter of Corinthians wasn't written to the church that met behind Jimbo's house. It's written to the people who gathered together in Corinth that were part of the church in Corinth. You need to commit to a local body of believers. In many cases, that is the first step towards legitimate spiritual growth. For many that have stagnated in their own spiritual lives, the way to break free of that is to say, this is the church I'm going to be a part of. Flaws, problems, failures. I'm here and I'm going to work to make it better to do what needs to be done. Let's stand as our musicians come forward.